Yeah, yeah, you might get it's noisy. So please, thank you. Okay, so we are live. Yeah, excuse me, if you don't mind, excuse me, Senora. I guess not. The door? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's getting okay. Okay, so uh, welcome to tonight's class and the sponsors. Nightly sponsors, Daniel and Tuvia Kimmel for the success of their children, Gabriel Yehuda, Binyam and Arya, Meya and Chana Badalia Ayelet, in memory of Devorah Fega Bat Shmuel, Zichron and for the foolish name of Yaakov and Penina, and Menachem Mendel Ben Sarabatia, and um, in memory of Shlomo Yeshaya Baruch Ben Ruven, Zichron for the Zivug of Shammai and Fagel, Shammai Simcha and Fagel Bnei Liba, and in memory of Shulamit Bat Simcha's Chonal of Racha, and Yibod Lachaim Tov Maruchim, a Rafur Shalema and Kroiva for Rezel Bas Miriam, and for Sterna Mezni Simcha Bas Sivia, and in memory of Hirsch, Tzvi Hirsch Ben uh, Ben Yeshua. Okay, so. Uh, Something went wrong with the printer here, so we don't have notes to give out. But God willing, um, anyone who, whoever has the email, uh, you know, I send it out via email. So whoever has uh, an email um, that they gave me and gets my weekly email, you'll be able to get the um, be able to get the notes and everything else. Okay, so this week's Torah portion is Pinchas, and the name and the name of the Torah, uh, the name of the lecture is Pinchas on steroids manifesting our passion and what is the modern-day issue so the way we work over here is we first start with a modern-day issue because everything about learning Torah the more mystical it gets the purpose is the more practical to be able to implement it in our lives so therefore what we're doing here is we always start with a modern-day issue what are we gonna get practically when we leave this class what are we gonna have practically a change in our life. Then we go on to list the uh, Kabbalistic concepts that we talk about, and then we come back to the understand from all that we've discussed. We'll be able to understand the um, the modern day issue, how we have to apply it. So the modern day issue for today basically is how to fix our inner flat tire. So what does that mean? Passion, passion is what the ear of our inner tire. It's what gets us rolling. Without a feeling, without a passion, every salesperson knows that uh, after they give you the whole logical and, uh, you know, why you should and why it's good, they're going to somehow try to get involved a feeling. Your real estate agent will tell you that there's already two bids on this, so you better bid fast. Or your real estate agent will ask you, so what color would you paint this room and where would you put this? And what she's trying to get is an emotional connection. Mm-hmm. Passion is emotions on steroids. What is I mean, you want me to believe that you don't know what steroids no, is? No, I know, but I didn't know how you relate this word. You want me to believe that you haven't used steroids? <laughs> anyway, let's let's roll on, guys. Let's roll on with the class. So anyway, so that's what we're trying to figure out. Now, the secret of a tire is that it needs to have the air, but the problem is that it's if it's not completely sealed, the air leaks out. That's the way we are with our passion. Not all of us, and not every time. But very often, we have this extreme passion. We're really gung-ho. We just read a book. We just came up with an idea. And we're just like, we found our purpose and our calling in life. And we're just like, ah, uh, and Literally, we don't have the energy it takes. How many people don't make it through the first year, or sorry, I say get into the second year of medical law school? How many people start their own business only to end up going back to work for someone else eventually? A lot of times this passion just kind of leaks out. The question that we want to discuss today is how can we create this way of fixing the flat tire, fixing the puncture, to be able to maintain this passion 
so that it can drive us all the way to the full destiny and not stop in the beginning, halfway down, or whatever. Okay, I need to make two introductions before we talk about the actual class. Introduction number one, Gilgulim. Gilgulim is reincarnation. Many people are surprised to hear that in Judaism, there's a fund fundamental belief about Gilgulim, reincarnation. Rab Isaac Luria, the famous Ariya Kadosh, who lived about 500 and Pika years, he said already in his times that everyone who's now alive is not here for the first time. I'm sorry about that. Is not here for the first time. He already said that back then. Interesting enough, we actually have not only the teachings of reincarnation, but we actually are given names of who was reincarnated to who, famous ones. Well, for example, um, Abel, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses was the reincarnation of Abel. Korach was the reincarnation of Cain. Cain and Hevel. We have, um, we have very interesting. We have, for example, um, Kabbalah explains why in Egypt we had the slavery was primarily about mortar and bricks because the Jewish people that were in Egypt, slaves, they were actually the reincarnation of those people who built the Tower of Babylon. And therefore the sin was with bricks and building, so therefore the tikkun, the soul correction was through the slavery of mortar and bricks, building, building pyramids. So therefore what we're learning here is that there's very clearly in the Jewish belief this concept of Gilgulim, reincarnation. What most people don't know is that there's, according to Kabbalah, two types of reincarnation. And what are the two types of reincarnation? One is the traditional one that you and I know. A guy lives, a guy dies, the soul comes back again, and a new baby is born, and it's the reincarnation of the old soul. That's traditionally what we know as reincarnation. What we don't know is, most of us, that there's another type of reincarnation which is called Sod Ha'ibur, which means that you're not born with that soul, but rather in your lifetime, your soul can switch. You can either also have another soul, or you can literally have, according to the Ria Kadosh, your soul can decide, I, I've had enough of this, I'm out, and you get a new soul. And the new soul is not a new soul, but it's a reincarnation, an Ibur of another soul. Why am I sharing this with you? Because the Arizal in the pre, pre eights Shar 31 and 32, I believe, he says that Pinchas was the reincarnation of his two uncles, not one uncle, his two uncles. Which two uncles? Nadav and Avihu. It actually says, you can look it up, I have the, uh, in the notes that you'll get, you'll have over there the exact place where to look it up. It actually says that right before he actually, we'll talk about what he did soon, but right before he killed Zimri, his soul left and the souls of his two uncles came in and what they did was the tikkun for the sin that they did in their lifetime. Now, what's just important for us to know right now is that Pinchas was born before Nadav and Avihu died. So it's a total different type of reincarnation. When they died, Pinchas was already born and he had his own soul. At this point, Parcha Nishmasa, his soul left him and in came those two souls. Did what they did and then there's a Tikkun. By the way, totally not for this class, but just that you should know that that Kabbalah of the writings of the Ari goes on to say that then they came back again to finish their Tikkun. They came back, Nadavavio came back into the life of Samuel the prophet. Okay, I just wanted you to understand that we're going to be talking a little about reincarnation, but not that we're going to focus on reincarnation, but the backdrop story of tonight's class is the reincarnation of the second kind, Soda Ibur. Why did Nadav Avio come into Pinchas? And what did they do wrong? 
and what did Pinchas do that was the tikkun, and why was it the sole correction of Nadavavu? So this is going to get, you know, Kabbalistic, but we need to talk about it. Let's go on to talk about the topics. I'm going to talk to you about ebb and flow. I'm going to talk to you about the famous story of the four that went into the garden, the orchard, not the garden, the pardis. I'm going to talk to you about the two first portions of the Shema, the Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekinu Hashem Echad, and the second portion of Ahayim Shemua. And then I'm going to talk to you about why this, why this act of Pinchas was the Tikkun for the sin of their uncles. So before we go anywhere, I guess I should first talk to you about the story of Datam Vaviram. Aaron had four sons, Dasan, Aviran, Elazar, and Itamar. At the eighth day, sorry? Not of Aviu, I said Aviram, I'm sorry, Aviu, I'm sorry, why did I say Aviram? I'm sorry, Aviu. Datam and Aviu, do, and then you have Elazar, and then you have Itamar. Now, Pinchas was the son of Elazar. He was the only one who wasn't a Kohen at that time. Because when God told Moses in Exodus in the portion of Tetzaveh that you should take Aaron and his sons and make them Kohanim. And then the offspring of these sons that will be born. Pinchas was the only grandchild who was already born and thus he remained a Levi. It wasn't until this story that our Torah portion says, and God gave the kahuna to, to Pinchas and his offspring. Now, let's go to what happened with Datan and Aviram. Dasan and Aviram, and Avi, Dasan and Aviram, why I keep calling Dasan and Aviram, my God? Nodov, wow, no wonder why. It's not Wow, wow, wow. Okay, erase that. Dasan and Aviram were total different people. We're talking about Nadav and Avihu. I'm sorry. Oh, wow, that was bad. Nadav, Avihu, Elazar, and Itamar. Nadav and Avihu were the ones that died. Why did they die? On the eighth day of the inauguration, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, they went and they decided to go to the golden altar, the inside altar, which is used only for incense, and the only blood that's sprinkled upon it is the blood of the Yom Kippur sacrifice, to a certain Yom Kippur sacrifice. Other than that, all the sacrifice was done on the outside. They went and they brought incense, and they brought it on the golden altar inside. And all of a sudden, because the Torah says they brought a foreign fire, which means they were not commanded to do this, thus all of a sudden, two fire spark jets entered their nostrils and took their soul out. Now, What's interesting is, simply the way the verse reads, they did a sin. They brought a fire that they weren't supposed to. And thus it was punishable by death. Let's look at the verse right after that. And right after that, what did we hear? And Moses tells Aaron, this is what God told me, that I will sanctify myself with those near to me, and I will be glorified. All of a sudden, we're hearing that not only aren't they people that sinned, but rather all of a sudden we're hearing that they're the ones that are called near to me, me, capital M, God. They're the ones that this action created a sanctification, and this action created a glorification. So what is going on? Is what Nadavavu did considered a chet, a sin, or is it considered a glorification and a sanctification and they are called post facto they're also still called near to me if they would have sinned then they would have lost that status of near to me so let's understand that's the story in order to understand what's really going on here I just want to parenthetically tell you just quickly that at the end of King David's life Bathsheba comes to David HaMelech and says, you promised me that my son, our son, Shlomo, is going to be the king. And yet, your son from another wife proclaimed himself king. And the people are looking to you for direction. Who is to be your successor? 
And then she goes on to say, and if he becomes king, then I and my son Shlomo will be chataim. Chataim means transgressors. Why? So Rashi says, Shosho, please, please. What does it mean to be a transgressor? What did they do that would be a transgression? So Rashi says that the word chataim also means lacking, chisaron. When we talk about Nadav and Aviyu creating, doing a sin, they didn't do a sin as in a self-centered, uh, forbidden act. Rather, what they did was lacking before the eyes of God. That's the deeper meaning of the word sin when we talk about the righteous. By the way, this is the only way to understand what it means when the Medrash says that an angel sins. An angel doesn't have freedom of choice, doesn't have an evil inclination. So how does an, evil, an, an angel sin? Once again, it means lacking, incomplete. There's something about what Nadav and Aviyu did that on the one hand is considered so super holy that Moses says upon them, near to me, says upon them that, I w that God says, me with a capital M, and God says their glorification what they did and their their sanctification. We need to understand. Is it lacking or is it a sanctification? The Torah seems to be speaking with split tongue. Then we have to understand why do we why is the Kabbalah tell us that Pinchas is the reincarnation of his two uncles, not of an Aviyu, and he is the tikkun. He is the sole correction for what they did with that fire. And then to understand how they, he became a Kohen through that act. Okay? And obviously that's going to tell us how to manifest our, our passion and not to let it just leak out before we fulfill our destiny. Okay. What is going on here? What is this incense? What is the fire? Why is it called a foreign fire? So Nadava view, it says, they took a pan, a shovel, and they put upon it the incense, and they brought it to the golden altar, and there was the fire. In Kabbalah, what does this represent? The golden altar represents, the altars represents your heart, the outer heart and the inner heart. The golden altar is the inner heart. The fire upon the altar is deep, passionate love, intense love. Incense, which is even holier than sacrifices, is intense love. So we're talking about here an experience of a unbelievable intense love, yearning and longing for God. That's a Kabbalistically what they did. Now the question is, if that's what they did, then why is God call it a foreign fire? So we're gonna have to understand. The entire universe, from its celestial and its terrestrial, from the spiritual and the physical, from the primordial first point of creation, is made in a binary code. Ebb and flow. Ebb and flow. Let's start with the physical. How does your, how does your definition of life? What does your lungs and your heart do? Contract, expand. Contract, expand. Again, the dual. The, it's, it's on the first hand, what happens? It's going to expand means it's pulling in, ebb. It's going to contract, it's pushing out. Let's talk about the simple definition of what happens at the end of the day. Your soul is exhausted. You're going to sleep. Your soul goes up, ebb. What happens when it ebbs? It reconnects, rejuvenates, recharges. You wake up the next morning, full of energy. Flow, the soul is giving off life to the body. By the end of the day, it's exhausted. It needs to once again, ebb. So everything God created was in an ebb and flow situation. Come down, give, expand, get, a, get depleted, come back up, rejuvenate, come back down. That's what it's all about. 
physical life, everything in the world works that way. Let's talk about the spiritual. In Kabbalah, you're familiar with Kabbalah? You studied a little Kabbalah? A little bit. So when we talk about the contraction, the Timtum, pre-Timtum, when there existed just the words of Kabbalah, he and his name, his name is defined in Kabbalah as his infinite light, his name is defined in, the, in, in Kabbalah as Ratzon, his infinite will. The words Kabbalah uses is that when it arose in his will to create a world, it was, the words are Mati Veloi Mati. In Hebrew that's Note Velo Note. It inclined and it didn't incline. It inclined and it didn't incline. The will for creation was moving outwards to start doing its job, pulled back into its source, into the bosom of the essence. That movement will later manifest itself in the most fundamental pattern of all of creation. Where do we see in the verse this notion of ebb and flow? It comes from Ezekiel's vision of the chariot. What does it say there? The verse says, And I saw the chayot. Chayot is a certain type of angels. There's different angels. You say it in your davening. You say, There's different angels. He said, And I saw the chayot. I saw the angels, the chayot, Ratsui, going up, the shuv, coming down. That's where we have the exact terminology of Ratsui Vishuv. Now, what does that mean to us? What it means to us is that God's plan, the global balance that God put into the universe on every level, and what you see it most is in the, clearly is when you see it in the physical, the most spiritual physical thing is fire. You watch the flame, jump off the wick, come back to the wick, jump off the wick, come back to the wick. No, I don't want to be here, let me go back into my source. No, come back down here, that's the will of God. Up and down, up and down. Okay? That concept is the balance. The balance is dependent upon that every single yearning, experience of yearning and love should express itself in the flow down here. Not going up, 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 but going up, rejuvenating, getting higher intensity, coming back down. That's the concept of what we're talking about. That's the balance. It's all about making it happen. Let's talk about this practical. We're going to get Kabbalistic and it's uh, what's going to happen. Let's talk practical. You're in a love relationship. And in this love relationship, I love you. Well, that's very sweet that you love me. No, I really love you and, and I sit in front of you Google-eyed. I just like googie. I just, you know, Bambi dear eyes. You know, I'm just like totally enamored. I'm totally in love. That's the Ratsui. But what use is that if it's not going to be a Shuv? I love you and therefore I will do this for you. And therefore, husband to wife, and therefore, I'll help you put the kids to bed. And therefore, I'll help you with the dishes. That means that when does, when does love become a constructive thing? When there's a ratzui v'shuv. If I'm doing things for you, but I have zero feelings of yearning for you, that's not good. If I have intense, overwhelming, paralysis feelings for you, but I can't bring it into, let's do something with this, that's no good. So it's actually this dual relationship of Ratsui Vishuv, ebb and flow, that is the balance of the universe. It's what defines functional life. Okay? Now that we understand Ratsui Vishuv, we'll understand what happened here with Nadav and Avihu. Nadav and Avihu. When we talk about the fire, the ketorah, the foreign fire, brought onto the golden altar, we're talking about a huge intense love which got so overwhelming, they got so close to the point where they could not contain themselves no more. Have you ever watched what happens to a flame when it's too close to a big fire? It's jumping in. You ever watch a campfire? The sparks get pulled in. What happened was that they allowed themselves to have the Ratsui experience 
that ebb flow yearning love of total paralysis on which the soul could no more contain itself in the body and it said I'm out of here I want back into the bosom of the mother flame I want back into my source I want to be within God that is considered foreign because that's not what God wants God wants us to have this intense feelings of love and closeness and yearning to then be translated into and therefore I will do what you ask to understand this we're going to go to one of the most famous stories have you ever heard this famous thing that you're not supposed to study Kabbalah until you're 40 where does that come from it comes from a story in the Gemara and Chagiga the Gemara says four entered into the orchard in Kabbalah Pardis is a code name for esoteric teachings. And what does it say there? There was Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Elisha Ben Abua, and Rabbi Akiva. Ben Azai died. Ben Zoma lost his mind. Elisha Ben Abua left the religion, and from there on he was called Acher, the other one. And then Rabbi Akiva. The, the, the Nusach, the, um, the way it's documented in, in one way of one documentation of it, in one transcript of it, from Ayn Yaakov, it says, Nichnas v'shalom v'yotze v'shalom. He entered in peace and he left in peace. Now, obviously, what's going on here? These weren't, slow, you know, these weren't little people. Anyone who's quoted in the Talmud had to have been able to resurrect the dead. That's how powerful they had to be spiritually. These weren't average people. So when we talk about these people, they obviously prepared themselves. You also understand, according to Kabbalah, that you don't just go into the Pardis. You have to prepare yourself in order to go up. In order to go up, that means you're building this intensity to be able to have the Ratsui, the yearning, the love. I'm being pulled up, right? And then what happens? Somehow, they all entered successfully, but only one leaves successfully. But there's a problem here. According to this transcript of the Gemara in the Ein Yaakov, it doesn't just say, it says what happened to all of them after they entered. But when it comes to Rabbi Akiva, it says, Nichnas v'sholom v'yotza v'sholom. He entered in peace and he left in peace. Why those extra two words? Entered in peace. Nichnas bishalom. Why? So obviously, we're being taught a very deep secret here. Normally, you would say, the guy just doesn't have willpower. He gets excited, this and that. Ah, don't worry. He's not doing anything. And we think that the problem is not with the passion. The problem is the next step. What the Talmud is teaching us here is, there's a deeper secret. The reason why Rabbi Akiva left in peace is because he entered in peace. Thus we extrapolate from here that those who didn't leave in peace was because they didn't enter in peace. So ultimately speaking, whether you come out in peace or don't come out in peace isn't an issue of the second half of the journey. It actually is going to tell us that it was a problem in the first half of the journey. There is two types of enterings. There's one type of entering which leads to later leaving, and there's one type of entering which is fatal. So now we're learning this two type of ratsuis. There's a ratsui where you're going on a one-way trip because you're not doing this functionally, so there's the, you're going to get to the point of no return. And then there's the other word, Ratsui, where you're doing this in a functional fashion, and therefore, you're going to be able to get back. Obviously, the question we're having here is, how do you do the ebb, which is functional, and leads to the shuv, the flow? To do this, we're going to understand one more teaching, where we have the ebb and the flow. So the Shema Yisrael is made up of three portions. The first portion is the Shema and the Vehafta. 
The second portion is the Vahaya Im Shemua. And the third portion was added on, which is about the Tzitzit and the Exodus. The first two portions are very interesting. They're not written in the Torah next to each other. And the way we read it is not in the order that it's written in the Torah. We read the Shema Be'ahavta first, the Vahayim Shemoa second. The Talmud wants to know why. The Mishnah and Brachas wants to know why. Why do we read the Shema before the Vahayim Shemoa? Especially that in the Torah we find it in the reversed order. And the answer is as follows. The reason why we say the Shema first, because what does the Shema mean? Hear, O Israel, God is my God, God is one. What does Vahayim Shemoa mean? And it will be, and if you will follow in my commandments, and I will give you the reins on time, and if you will not follow. That means the first paragraph, the Shema, is about accepting God as our king. The second paragraph is about accepting God's, the king's decrees. So the Talmud, the Mishnah says, that God said, first accept me as your king, and then accept my commandments, my decrees. It wouldn't make sense if you first accept my decrees, before you accepted me as your king. You need a commander, a commander before you have commandments. That's the simple teaching. What is Kabbalah and Hasidus doing with this? Kabbalah and Hasidus explains like this. The Zohar says, it's an exact quote from the Zohar. The Zohar says that when you say the word Shema Yisrael Hashem Lekinu Hashem Echad, so you know that you're supposed to Extend the Echad. How long are you supposed to extend it? According to the Zohar, you're supposed to extend it until you reach that place through meditation and thinking that you are literally willing to sacrifice your life for the oneness of God. You need to be in a state of mind where literally, if you were standing, God forbid, at the Spanish Inquisition, you know that you're going to say, I will die as a Jew and not live as a non-Jew. Self-sacrifice. That is what? Ebb or flow. If I'm saying that I'm willing to die for you, God, my connection to you is so strong, my longing for you is so strong that I'm willing to die for you, that's an ebb. I'm leaving. Doing God's mitzvahs is what? It's a flow. I love you, and therefore I'm going to do what you tell me. I love you, God, and therefore I'm going to light my Shabbos candles. I love you, God, therefore I'm going to put on my tefillin. I love you, God, therefore I'm going to keep kosher. I love you, God, therefore I'm going to keep Shabbat, whatever it is. So here you have the two paragraphs. Shema, paragraph number one, is the ebb. Paragraph number two is the flow. <laughs> Basically, in paragraph number one, we're telling God we're willing to die for you. And God tells us, oh, you're willing to die for me, so do me a favor, live for me. Do the mitzvot. That's the ebb and the flow. I'll die for you. I'm willing to ebb. Well, how about live for me? Do the flow. Day by day. Moment by moment, action by action. Now let's look at what Kabbalah and Hasidus does with the way this was organized. First Shema, then Vahayam Shemoah. When you learn the simple explanation of the Mishnah, you're learning that the whole purpose is that the Shema should be first. Accept the king and then his commandments. In Kabbalah, it's the opposite way. Kabbalah, the order is that the Vahoyim Shema should be the follow-up of the Shema. What, the, what God and the sages are telling us by putting the Shema before the Vahoyim Shema is that when is the Shema useful, functional, when it leads to Vahoyim Shemoah. When is my intense love and commitment to God functional when it drives me to do what I need to do? Exactly like we discussed in the love relationship. I love you, I can't, I stand in front of you, I fall silent, I'm like lost. Well, that ain't functional. I love you, so we're going to live our life together day by day, moment by moment, action by action. Now we're talking functional. Thus, it's not about to have the Shema before the Vahoyim Shema. It's not about having the king before the, his decrees. Rather, according to Kabbalah, it's about make sure that your ebb leads you to a flow. 
Exactly what Rabbi Akiva did. Make sure that you're going into the garden is for no other reason than to come out of the garden and be a better person. Every spiritual experience, which is an ebb, is only here to empower our flow. You're having these spiritual feelings, you're having these spiritual experiences, for what reason? To end up on, on, on some treetop in Tibet? Or is it because, no, the next poor person, God's creature, created in God's image, let me feed him, let me help him. Obviously, because they died. So we'll talk about that in a moment. So now that we understand the Shaman of Hayyam Shemoah, Sure, please. So, I'm still stuck on something. So go ahead, go ahead. It'll be hard for me to move forward. Um, just because I, I just returned from Spain and you made a reference to the Spanish, Spanish Inquisition. Yeah. And just in that example um, that you used of the people that were willing to die instead of conversion. Correct. Was there anything deeper in that example or you know, just a good example to that, that, what you were about to... to that is the point. example of the Shema. To reach the ebb. Where, where God is more important to you than your own life. So that's a higher choice you're saying. That's the ebb. That's the ultimate ebb. Okay. I am so. People that converted to save their lives, but still practiced in secret. Did they not get the flow? No. So it's, it, on the contrary, the they did the flow. Okay. So they already by converting. That's also. By converting, well, outside conversion versus inside not doing it. The, the Maimonides dealt with that. Maimonides dealt with whether they have the law of those who betrayed God or not. He dealt with it in, 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 with another situation where he stuck up for them. Igeret Teman. So, but, so I'm, I don't want to get into the law of it now. I just want to, I just like want to talk you've about... you chosen that example as a reason, as a higher choice. No, I, I'm choosing that example to what the definition of Shema is according to the Zohar. Okay. It's such an intense yearning and love and commitment to God where being with God, loyal to God, is more important than my very own physical life. Thus, I'd rather die a loyal Jew than to live converting out. I'm not talking to you about those who converted. The example was limited to right. those who didn't convert. So that's, that's, that's all. That's a higher choice. Then. I, I don't know right now. I'm just talking about what the ebb is. Okay. What, what they did and what they didn't do. And if, if there's something wrong, I told you. My Maimonides deals with that with his letter to Teman when there was the but forced uh, conversion. To God is a higher choice. That's what it sounds like. I'm not getting into that. What I'm talking about right now is that example was very limited. It was just an example limited to the fact to understand what the Zohar means that in your mind when you say the Shema Yisrael you're talking about coming to such an intense tangible yearning and love where it becomes more important than even your physical life. That's what I was talking about there. Then we're saying according to Kabbalah the Shema is functional when it leads to Vahayim Shemwa. <laughs> I, I just share with you as a fundraiser. As a fundraiser. Let's get very practical. If I would count how many people, if I just got a nickel for every person who ever told me, Rabbi, if I ever win the lottery, I'm building you a shul. <laughs> These are people that are willing to give the shul a million dollars. And then you ask them, can you make a commitment to $18 a month? <laughs> You see the Shema and the Vahoyim Shema? The Shema is Rabbi, and I believe them. I'm telling you, you have a shul, the most beautiful shul ever. That's beautiful. You're committed. You're committed to your community. Okay, how about the Vahoyim Shema? Not the million dollars. Give me $18 a month so I can go ahead and make sure the budget is covered. All of a sudden, <laughs> that's the difference between the Shema and the Vahoyim Shema. When is the Shema? A successful Shema, when my yearning to give you a million dollars leads me to give you eighteen dollars. Cause the <laughs> on topic here, I don't want to get too much off topic here, but they tell a joke that this uh, Russian cop calls over this Jew, tells the Jew, "If you had a million ruble, would you give it to Mother Russia?" Absolutely. If you had a half a million ruble, absolutely. A quarter of a million ruble, absolutely. Tell me something. 
if you had one cow, two goats, and three chickens, would you give it to Mother Russia? No. So I don't understand. You're going to give a million ruble, but you wouldn't give this? Now, what don't you understand? A cow, two goats, and three chickens, I have. <laughs> that's, that's the Shema, without the Vahayim Shema. I'm willing to give you everything, but nothing. I'm willing to give my life, but I'm not willing to live. Which, by the way, we're, we're bouncing around here, but just for, and that's why I usually don't take questions, so just to stay focused, but just to clear, tell me, Isaac was 40 years old when, he was 37 years old, when Abraham went to put him on the altar. We make such a big thing about Abraham, as if Isaac was a nobody. When you're 37 years old and your dad's 99 years old, you probably can get away from him. And he willingly puts himself on the altar. Why do we talk about Avram's test? It wasn't Avram's test, it was Isaac's test. You know the answer? Isaac had to die once. Avram would have to wake up every morning knowing what he did. The difference between Vahayim Shemoa and the Shema. The difference between that one ebb where you're just gone or the flow every day, every day, day after day. Now let's go back to Nadav and Aviyu and let's go back to Pinchas. There's a very interesting point that the verse makes and Rashi points it out. Because Aaron and his two remaining sons were in the inauguration and they were the only Kohanim left. Therefore, Moses tells them, you cannot carry out the bodies of your brothers. Rather, he asked his uncles, cousins, to come and take them out. Then the verse says that they came and they took them out. Biktonotam. What does Biktonotam mean? And they took, no, no, not Katan. Kaf Taf. Ketonet. In their tunics, in their clothing. Says Rashi, why, why, they took them out. We'd have to tell us, did they tell us if they held their hand or their foot? They took out the bodies. So Rashi says that we're learning here something very important. We're learning here that this was not a fire like when you get stuck in a fire and you're burnt. Because if you're stuck in a fire and you died in a fire, then you don't have no clothing left. Your body is, is, if anything's left. Here we see from this verse that what's really happened was, Rashi says, that two sparks, flames, came forth from the altar, shot into their nostrils, and took out their soul. Thus we're learning that their body and their garments were complete, untouched by the fire. That's why the verse adds on this one ver word that they carried them out by their clothing to let us know that everything physically was complete, untouched. The spiritual was pulled out of them and thus, thus, thus they were left lifeless. Let's talk about this for a moment. There's two ways to have an ebb experience. There's two ways that the soul leaves the body when a person is at that extent. One way is that the body is destroyed and thus the soul leaves. Going back to the Spanish Inquisition. They didn't die there that they stood there and their soul left their body. No. The body was destroyed and thus the soul left the body. They were burnt. And so too all those who were persecuted for no other reason that they're Jewish. They didn't have this intense love where their soul just left their body. Quite the contrary. Their body was so destroyed that the soul left. Thus the ebb experience wasn't a spiritual experience that was disconnected from the physical. Rather it was the physical together with the spiritual. What did Nadav and Avio experience? They experienced a total detachment of their physical. They were in such deep meditation, which led to such a deep spiritual yearning and longing and feeling of closeness. Remember the words that God said, those near to me. 
Thus the sanctification and the glorification was that here were two people that got so intense in their spiritual yearning and longing that their souls left their body. Which now tells us something amazing. The reason their souls left their body is not because they were punished. When you learn the simple verse without Kabbalah and Hasidus, what are you learning? They did something that was punishable by death and in the moment they got punished and they would die. Now we're learning a different thing here. It's not that they were punished. That was their act. Their act was that they went beyond the point of no return in their intensity of longing and yearning and oneness with God that their soul left. You remember the verse in Genesis? It says, And God blew the soul into the nostrils. And that's why it says that the soul came out of the nostrils. But that's not what they wanted. It is what they wanted. That's why it was found lacking. That's why it was considered a sin. Because what God wants from your yearning and intensity is to do something about it. Take the ebb and empower a flow. Take love and empower actions. Thus Nadav, Avil, three of the four people that went into the guard, into the orchard, Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Rabbi Lisha, Ben Abua, what they did wrong was that their ebb was wrong. Their ebb became, began from a point of detachment of the physical. They were allowing the yearning to be that of the soul's experience, denying the body. And thus you have a problem. I want to give you just again a physical example here. Do you know how many times I come across a situation where a family is distraught? Why? Because either the husband, the wife, whichever, let's just pick the husband. The husband started going to Torah classes. The husband started having a passion for Judaism. The husband started getting involved. And all of a sudden, he wants his wife to start going to the mikveh. He wants his wife to start keeping kosher. But she didn't get onto the train. She never took that ride. And he's, what do you mean? Hey, I didn't change. Sweetheart, you changed. You're not the man I married. What happened here was, it was a detachment, so to speak. One went, didn't take the rest with. And now, you thought we have, used to, we have a problem. We do that with ourselves. When we allow ourselves to get spiritual and spiritual and spiritual, but we don't take along our body, our actions. We detach. When I go to prayer, I'm detaching from my physicality. And therefore, in shul, I'm an angel. In my office, I'm a lying thief. And there's no problem with it. Because the shul is just a spiritual situation. I don't even think about my physical life there. That has nothing what to do with this. This is going to be a spiritual high. When you have that type of ebb, then nothing comes out of it. It's a spiritual high. It's good while it lasted. And we'll be back tomorrow for another hit. Pinchas was a total different thing. What happened with Pinchas? So the Talmud tells us in Sanhedrin, page 82, side B, tells us that you should know that miracles happened to Pinchas. Why? i got to just a little clarify the law. Pinchas, the answer would be, don't do anything. Why? Without getting to all the details, but the law of having a sexual relationship with a non-Jewish woman talking about the way it happened here it was the man who was Jewish and woman the law of having a sexual relationship with a non-Jewish woman is not punishable by death in the court system but then there comes along a very interesting teaching Kinaim Pogimbo the zealous ones in the heat of the moment they see what's going on they'll kill him you cannot kill the zealot for what he did. Now why am I pointing out to you that this isn't the law? This is a category of zealousness. Because the category of zealousness is very contained. If the law says go and kill him, 
then the killer is protected by the law. He's not considered a murderer. If the law doesn't mandate to kill, then you're a murderer. What is the law if you see someone going to murder someone else? What are you allowed to do? You're allowed to take the person's life. If you see A going to kill B, you can save B by taking A's life. Which meant that all the people of Shimon, that whole tribe, they see Pinchas coming along with a spear. They know exactly what he's going to do. Any one of them could have killed Pinchas and would have been in the right. Another case. What happens if someone comes to kill you? What does the verse say? If someone comes to kill you, rise up and kill him. That means that Zimri himself could have killed him. Let me tell you another case. If the minute Zimri sees Pinchas, he would have physically separated himself. He would have ended the sexual act and Pinchas would have killed them. Pinchas would be put to death. Because the zealot is only protected in the moment of the sin. If it's not in the moment of the sin, then the heat of the zealousy is not there. And he killed them. He is accounted, he is held accountable, and he will be killed for murder. That means that everything that Pinchas did endangered his life. Thus, when he had this moment of zealousness, i.e. self-sacrifice, i.e. ebb, he was putting his body on the line. This wasn't a spiritual meditation of, of intense ebb. This was, I'm very likely going to get killed for what I'm doing now. What's the difference between the two? The difference between the two is that when you have an ebb that's detached of your body, it will not have no effect on your body. Thus the example of one member of the family becoming religious without working with the others. And thus the example of what happens when you have this amazing meditation and your soul leaves and your body is whole. The body didn't come along for the ride. You didn't take the body along for the ride. So therefore the body has no understanding of this experience. It's just a moment of boom, gone. But when you work it with the body, when the ebb is not detached, I don't go into zoning out in order to experience my spirituality. Rather, I go into zoning in. Then the outcome of loving God is taking care of God's creatures. The outcome of loving God is doing what God wants you to do. Thus, Pinchas was the ebb that brought to a flow. Nadav and Avia were the ebb that was detached from the flow. Now you understand why Pinchas is the sole correction for Nadav and Avia. The ab perspective is the ab perspective here is that he was in a moment of zealousness going on a mission which was most likely suicidal. The prince of Shimon is living amongst his tribemen who are going to protect his life. He was one man against an entire tribe. They saw exactly what he was going to do. He didn't like hide a Uzi under his jacket. He came with a Romach Biado. That was driven by an insanity of passion and commitment to God. And again, Nadav and Avihu were planning on just flying to heaven. Nadav and allowed themselves to have a detachment, a zoning out experience of Ratsui. Until they got... Was that their original perspective? Did they think that they're going to go too far? Simply from Kabbalistic speaking, yes. I mean, they, like they planned on staying in heaven. They, they, were, they were going for the ultimate journey. Literally, they were going for the high of which there is no return. They want to be close to God. Yeah, like they were going for the ultimate high. Was it actually Yom Kippur or they went on another No, day? that happened to be on Rosh Chodesh Nisan. It was the first day of the Kohanim. It was the eighth day of the inauguration. So the first seven days, God. Moses did everything. This was the first time so that the Kohanim were doing it. They didn't have a chance to be Kohanim either. No. They, they had one moment of Kohanim <laughs> and they took it for the full Monty. They OD'd. They OD'd on spirituality. Plain and simple in, in layman's terms. And they knew the importance of the integration? 
It's what's interesting is what's interesting is that in Kabbalah, I'm just going to share this with you, and then I want to get to the practical part. In Kabbalah, we don't have always a right and a wrong. We sometimes have a right and a more right. We're accusing Nadav and Avihu of what? Of allowing their love for God to get beyond their control. May we all be accused of that sin. But we know that the real point is, what God really wants us to do, is to love Him enough to come out of the trance and do what He wants you to do. Literally. Eat a filter fish, not lobster, because you just had a spiritual high and you want to do what God wants. That's as simple as it gets. That's what God wants. But don't write them off. Remember what Moses says. The sanctification by those near to me, too near. <laughs> so that, that's not, they're, they're not, we're not, we're not uh, making them convicted felons. But we need to understand that what they did would ultimately need a tikkun. Now I want to wrap By it up who? with the practical. By, oh. By Pinchas oh, okay. doing it, that's why his, their Got souls it. went into the nephews yeah. when he had that moment where he was going to do the ebb right. Mm -hmm. And thus, like Rabbi Akiva, he went in not for his own spiritual yearning. He went in for the sanctification of God's name. And thus he removed God's anger. It was all about the flow. He saw 24,000 people dying because of this. It's interesting. The teaching says that he carried out their bodies and he put it on the ground and he said, God, for this you're killing 24,000 Jews? The angels, it says, the angels wanted to push him away. Hey, that's not the way you talk to God. And God said, leave him be. Leave them. He's a zealot, the son of a zealot. Leave him. That's the way he's talking. He's not talking from a place of, of he's talking from, God, these are your people. You're letting them die. Take care of the problem. Let's isolate it damage control his whole focus was the flow his focus wasn't on killing them his focus was on stopping the plague it was all about the flow not about the ebb the proper purpose for ebb is a flow I'm getting kind of bored with my service to God it's becoming kind of uh, you know alright time to do something to get some spirituality here let's go for an intense ebb for what reason so that I can once again start doing mitzvahs with a fire. Let's wrap it up. Anthony Robbins and the likes, what do they talk about? They talk about that you have to have, you know who Anthony Robbins is, Tony Robbins? He's an inspirational speaker. This Tony Robbins, when you listen to him and the people that speak like him, what do they tell you? <laughs> They're talking about that you have to have such a deep passion. He talks about how you have to smell it, how you have to see it, how you have to feel it, how you have to hear it. What's he talking about? Your passion for success or whatever it is that you want that you define as success. Success has more than one definition. But your passion of success has to be so real that you have to already taste it. You notice what he's saying here? You've got to use your five physical senses. If your passion is only intellectual and emotional, not physical, you're not going to make it happen. Thus your entire building, the giving birth to your passion, your, your passionate dream, cultivating your passionate dream, has to always be monitored that your body is coming along. It's not becoming an abstract, um, metaphysical, spiritual experience. It's physical. I want to say it in another way. Your passionate dream has to become so real that the physical, unbearable, not having it, is that real. You physically cannot stand. You're in pain by not having your passionate dream actualized. If you ever allow your passionate dream to slip through the fingers of your physical experience, that ebb will not bring to a flow. 
And thus the ebb has to always be the flow. That's why they tell you people make a vision board. They tell people make a vision board. See it. Cut out pictures. How do you want your house to look? Your dream house to look? Make a board. Put pictures. What kind of furniture? You got to see it. You got to feel it. You got to taste it. You got to smell what success is going to look like. Then your ebb drives to a flow. But if you allow it to get detached and all of a sudden the passion of your dreams are locked in here and not anywhere else, that ebb doesn't bring to a flow. Thank you, people. Yeah, let me just...